recruiting for hard skills is easy, right? It's recruiting for soft skills that's hard. And you can train hard skills, at least at the, even at the age of, you know, like some of my teachers, whether they're anywhere from 25 to 35, some of them more advanced in the 40. But you can teach the hard skills. Doesn't matter if it's like ELT, it doesn't matter like English language training, or if it's like test prep services or so forth. But the starting with desire to want to teach, right? Just not desire to explore, but desire to want to teach, desire to want to um, excel at customer service, to want to serve, um, desire to want to be a good team member, right? Those are much harder to like develop in somebody when they're already 25, 30 or so forth. Xin chào các bạn, lại là 021 Station chúng mình đây. Trong tập trước, cũng là buổi phỏng vấn tiếng Anh đầu tiên được phát sóng của 021, chúng ta đã cùng nhau tìm hiểu về Point Avenue dưới góc nhìn của CEO Danny Huang. Vào năm 2018, Danny Huang đã rời Trung Quốc và tới Việt Nam thành lập ra Point Avenue. Trong quá trình tìm hiểu về Point Avenue, có lẽ có một điều mà Hoa rất ấn tượng về tổ chức giáo dục này, đó chính là định hướng là giúp học sinh hiểu rằng cuộc sống không chỉ là sách giáo khoa, mà các bạn cần phải tìm cách giải quyết các vấn đề toàn cầu cùng với cộng sự thay vì là chỉ riêng một mình. Và ngày hôm nay, 021 Station chúng mình rất vinh dự được phỏng vấn CEO Tommy Nguyễn của Point Avenue. Cả Danny và Tommy đều là hai cựu sinh viên của West Point, ngôi trường được mệnh danh là nơi đào tạo ra những công dân hoàn hảo nhất cho nước Mỹ và thậm chí là cả thế giới. Tommy Nguyễn từng dành 9 năm trong quân đội và tham gia triển khai nhiều nhiệm vụ quân sự tại Iraq, Afghanistan và nhiều quốc gia khác nhau. Cá nhân Hoa cũng rất hào hức được đồng hành với mọi người trong buổi trò chuyện ngày hôm nay. Thôi, mình không để mọi người phải chờ lâu nữa nhé! I guess I refer to myself as Tommy. That was really the first name um, that I learned of myself. I didn't find out till much later that Tommy wasn't my real name. Um, Vietnamese American, uh, born and raised in California or Southern California. Uh, my parents are Saigonese, um, so originally from uh, Ho Chi Minh City. And then uh, I believe they had immigrated over in 81, 82. Um, myself, born and raised 85. Um, you had met my CEO and you know my co-founder there. Um, so I had met him at uh, the United States Military Academy or West Point, which is where I attended school. Uh, a little bit younger than him, so I graduated one year after. Um, you know, joined the military for many different reasons. One is uh, out of the whole 9/11 generation, um, wanting to serve, wanting to follow in some of my family footsteps. You know, the other part of it was obviously it was a good education, um, and I needed the scholarship as well. I uh, spent about nine total years in the military, um, mostly in the special operations. So I've served in the Middle East, served in Afghanistan, I've served in South, Southeast Asia, also East Asia. Yeah, so total time, nine years. I think I exited from the military sometime in 2016, um, just for my own personal goals, had done everything I wanted to do in the military and was looking for um, other professional personal fulfillment, um, pivoted over to uh, pursuing um, my master's in uh, business, uh, did a bit of time in finance um, before ultimately getting the call again from my CEO. Um, and then asked me to consider a, uh, you know, I guess at that point, a tertiary career, um, primarily in education um, in Vietnam and Southeast Asia. Um, and I've been here in Vietnam since 2018. So working, been here for over three years um, and then uh, soon enough working on my fourth year. Yeah. Thank you for opening up this story by giving us such a big 
picture about the journey, and it makes me curious about Tommy as a kid. So, what were you like as a kid? What was I like as a kid? Well, I was very different as compared to what I am now. I mean, again, my parents are—I uh, guess they're called first generation, um, or depends on how you term it, right? But um, they had immigrated from one country to another. Myself, growing up, even though my Vietnamese isn't so great right now, it's okay. But uh, Vietnamese was the first language I learned. Um, I never learned English until I set foot into my preschool. Um, Southern California back then is not what it is now, right? Although it's a big melting pot and it was a big refugee destination for Vietnamese people and other um, Asian uh, ethnicities. Um, back then, it wasn't quite so developed and bulked up, right? There was no like Grand Bolsa. There was no Big Orange County, the OC, whatever it is now. Um, yeah, for me, I grew up in a, um, I guess, a moderate-sized household. I had my mom, my dad, and then I had my two other siblings. So I'm the oldest of three siblings. I have a younger sister and a younger brother. Um, I spent a lot of time with them. Um, you know, just grew up, focused on a lot of schooling, as you know, what Asian parents want of their kids. Um, focused a lot of time with my sister. Eventually, um, my parents had separated. Uh, so me and my sister spent a lot of time raising, developing our younger brother. Um, but yeah, it was a lot of family, um, which is uh, you know something as I look back on that I'm uh, very thankful for. My siblings and I are incredibly close. Um, even now during a time of COVID, uh, we catch up every night. Um, so we um, like FaceTime. Um, we call every night. I catch up with them. I get to catch up with my niece, and yeah, yeah. It seems to me that at a, a really young age, you developed this sense of awareness of your surroundings, and you stepped up as a bigger brother to take care of your younger siblings. So, did the weight of being the bigger brother ever feel too heavy on you? Um. Yes and no. I mean, um, I think the more I have to tell this story now, the more I kind of like uplift myself. Right. I'm like this. Grand successful brother who you know helped develop his younger sister, younger brother, but that wasn't always the case. I lucked out a lot. Um, my dad, uh, you know, separated from my mother and family probably when I was ten or eleven. Um, that was when my younger brother was born. Um, so my sister and I are separated by two years, and myself and my brother by eleven. Um, truthfully, there's kind of many dimensions in this. I think first and foremost, it came out of a a need, right? It's just like. My mom was working two jobs at the time, right? She just needed help, right? And she was just trying to like keep a roof over her head, put food on the table. She needed my sister and I to step up. And it was just one of those things. It's like out of love for my mother, right? It's just like, wow, my mom's working so hard, right? My sister and I, we got to figure this up and pick up the slack. We weren't always perfect. Um, my sister and I, we used to argue all the time. But my sister is like kind of uh, just like my mother, um, like my best friend. You know, my mother and I, because I was the I guess the only male in the house, you know, I regard her not only as my mother, um, but also like my partner, my best friend, uh, my sister. Very much the same way. We didn't always do everything right, you know. I'm sure we screwed up lots of things, but between my sister and I, um, juggled a lot of things and how to, you know, kind of take care of each other and take care of our brother. And up until now, these things have worked out. Yeah. Hmm. Thank you, Tommy, for being so open and sharing your story with us. I am sure it must not have been easy, and to me, I think it is always helpful to have some sort of role models or figures that help you navigate your development. So, was there any kind of figures in your life that help you develop your characters or 
walk you through your experience growing up? Uh, there was actually two real parent figures in my life. We talk about my mother a lot, and I'll get back to her. She's obviously a huge woman, right? Um, but the other one would be uh, who I call my uncle or my back. Um, he is my father's older brother. So my uh, uncle really stepped into my life and my siblings' lives when my dad had stepped out, and so I did benefit from a lot of things. Um, but I think more than anything, it's just um, you know I think my mom pressed upon me and my siblings very early on that you know the only people we can depend on are each other, right? Um, friends come and go, people come and go, but family's here to stay. And I think that's like a very Asian thing, right? Um, it's a very communal thing. Like all we have is each other, and uh, I think it's just this uh, togetherness, right? Like individually, we might break apart, but together, like we'll figure out a way. It always won't be easy. We'll fail. We'll make mistakes, um, but together, we'll be able to get through this. Um, and you saw that. You saw that. You know, like my time in high school wasn't always easy.、Uh, couldn't have been easy for my sister. My little brother was like, you know, just knew no better. It was just kind of like high on life, watching cartoons, doing whatever. But yeah, it was.、Uh, it was. We grew together.、Um, I was the first in my family to go to college,、um, and that was not easy in the sense of like leaving my mother and my sister behind, right, to go to school on the other side of the country,、um, watching my sister going to college while trying to take care of my family. And eventually, you know, me, I would deploy overseas.、Um, so we spent. We were lucky to have those kind of like first three, four years、um, during my high school period to really bond. It got tested over my college. It got tested over university, and you know, kind of beyond.、Um, but we've learned to adapt and grow around each other. I mean, my siblings and I, my parents, we're spread to the four winds now.、Um, but. Home is for me. Home is in Orange County. Home is in like Southern California. Home is wherever my siblings and my、uh, mother, my family, where we all get together. It is really beautiful hearing you speak about your family, and I can see the love and the bonding that you guys have together through the way you speak about it. It is really beautiful to hear. So I guess you grew up in Southern California, and then you made the choice to go to West Point. Why do you make that decision? You know, it's kind of strange in the sense of like now it's like、uh, it, you know, it kind of strikes people as strange. But there's actually quite a large number of Vietnamese people at West Point now. Back when I went, by the time I graduated, I think there was only like maybe a handful of like Vietnamese descendants at West Point attending presently. But now I think there's like twenty five, thirty like Vietnamese American students there, and the academies just recently opened up doors to accept.、Um, Vietnamese cadets from Vietnam,、um, so that's like a new policy. But yeah, why, why West Point? It wasn't so much just why West Point. You know, for me growing up,、um, I told you about like my my、uh, uncle who played a large role in my life. He had served,、um, you know, during the、uh, Vietnam-U.S. conflict.、Um, you know, I'm not going to comment too much on that,、um, but at least for him, I think a lot of his experiences shaped him. Um, he was just, for lack of a better word, he was just this gentle giant in my life. Incredibly strong person, but just very kind and very compassionate. And I always emulated that, and I still do. Right? He is just uh, the biggest uh, gentle giant in my life, just like a big teddy bear. And I, I wanted to be that. Right? This man who just,、um, you know, after watching my father leave, he stepped in to take care of our family. You know, just. As a general father figure, but then、uh, it was just his strength of character and strength of leadership that I wanted to emulate. 
9-11 happened, and uh, I think that that was a calling card that happened during my 11th grade year. And I just remember being inspired by kind of like um, this sense of patriotism, I guess, right? I mean, um, I served to obviously, or I joined to serve my country. Back then I defined it as the U.S. It still is. Yeah, so wanting to be like my uncle, wanting to serve, getting a good education for more or less free, minus the uh, time commitment after. Um, those were kind of like the three primary reasons. Well, so like I said before, your experience is really different from what the majority of our society get to experience. So I wonder what kind of challenges or what kind of difficulties did you face being in the combat? And what was the most challenging thing that you had to go through being in the combat? I don't know if there was like any one period of hardship that I would say um, stands out. Obviously, there were many different kinds of hardships. There was like a training hardship. There were deployment hardships. There were sometimes loss of life was a hardship. Um, lots of other like operational challenges, um, professional challenges, many things. I would say more than anything, it was personal. So I started my time in the infantry. That's where I did uh, Iraq with my current CEO, Danny. Um, and he eventually transitioned to more special operations, um, spent more time like working um, by, with, and through a lot of foreign countries, um, seeing a lot of different things. I think the challenges came in stages, just like it does for anybody in any career field. You kind of set out thinking that you're going to do something only to find yourself doing something else. I kind of had started this whole thing about like joining the military, you know, doing it to wanting to serve my country, quote unquote, my country is defined as the US. Um, but eventually a lot of the reasons why I stayed was beyond that, right? It was wanting to serve uh, more than just the US, it was wanting to serve the world. Um, I was pretty lucky. Um, I was mentioning to uh, Kualing here that I had lived in Japan. That was kind of like my final um, launching base where I was working with like dozens of Asian countries, assisting them on a lot of different security problems, whether it was like terrorism, um, hostage rescue, counter narcotics, counter human trafficking, things like that. Um, some of the hardest things was just uh, working by, with, and through other countries. By that, I mean like experiencing their hardships, like seeing how um, the gaps that they had, not only in uh, material support, but also people support, the problems they were facing, right? There were times where I was like, let's say, working in Iraq or Afghanistan for one reason or another, right? Obviously, my team and I were doing our best to not only assist the security side, but like the infrastructure development, the people development, taking care of them, just watching watching the toll of war um, on their collective and their individual life. It was hard, right? But in a sense, like for me, it was a lot of growth. It was a lot of growth in the sense of it made me thankful for what I had. Right, everything from my upbringing um, to my college experience to my like professional experiences, just thankful for everything, but also thankful and humbled by you know like these people wherever it was I went, like working in Afghanistan, working in Nepal, working in India, working in Myanmar, just like um, seeing lots of um, just meeting a lot of great people, a lot of kind people who just kind of taught humbled me to be to want to be a better person. I don't know if you can tell that, but I loved your story and it is so inspiring to hear. Um, you know, do you ever question what if you hadn't done any of these things? What if you hadn't gone to West Point? How would you have turned out to be a person? Have you ever wondered that? Oh, no, probably. Uh, 
I was like a very, uh, I was like, I mean, coming out of high school, um, super idealistic uh, in terms of what I was going to do, right? I was like, I was going to go save the world. I was going to go make changes. I was going to, I don't know what I was going to do, but I was going to get my name in the history books. I'm a huge history buff, right? And so I was just like, I am going to honor my mother and my family by getting my name in the history books. Don't really know how I'm going to do it, but I'm going to do it. Um, but you kind of come and learn. It's just like, obviously, through college, you get beat down. Through life, you get beat down. But in the process, you realize that that beatdown is important. Yeah, in, in many different ways. But just um, kind of like looking at where I had hoped to go versus now, um, my story has changed a lot, right? I used to care about like this great achieving great feats, achieving maybe fame or maybe wealth or something. But uh, for me, um, it's all about the people. Um, it really is all about the people. People think that like, you know, when you think of the military, it's about a lot of war making and it's not, um, it's about just helping people, um, at least for the real ones. And that's what I look back on. I look about all the people connections I've made, whether in the US or foreign abroad, right? And those have been, that has been what has truly uplifted me versus like what I do now, you know, I get to work with a lot of leading educators, right? Trying to define a new vision for education or how to better assist kids mentoring kids, not just in academics, but mental health, physical health, so many things. Um, and it's just working by, by, with, and through a lot of just incredibly competent, uh, passionate, and compassionate people. Um, and that's what drives me. And I never thought that that's what I would care about, right? But I guess to bring it all back, like, um, do I really care about getting my names in history books anymore? No, not so much. People like my brother, he's a super talented, amazing individual. And then other kids I get to work with now, whether in Vietnam, Thailand, or elsewhere, like, um, you know, I might not get my name in the history books and that's okay, but I know for sure that like, yeah, my students, right, through them, I will have affected more than just, you know, myself, like Yin over here, right? She's gonna go do great things. Um, so I'm excited. Um, I yeah. guess we would never know how things would have turned out if blah, blah, blah didn't happen, right? But I'm super grateful that I'm sitting here with you, listening to your story, and I can tell how you, you, you really appreciate life and I think that is such a beautiful thing to see. And it is my privilege to be sitting here and hearing you reflect on your journey. Um, so thank you. Um, so my next question will be a little bit about West Point, because I'm aware that West Point is known for its philosophy and leadership and in a lot of aspects, um, including being disciplined and serving others. So are there any kind of takeaways that you got from West Point that you are still applying in your daily life? Yes and no. Everything has to be adapted. And like, yeah, people like when they talk about that and they like to bring it up. Um, yeah, there is a West Point methodology, right? It focuses not only on academic and physical development, but a lot of uh, character and leadership development. Um, but uh, my journey through West Point was very different. I was not a star cadet um, versus like my brother. My brother is like, he graduated top four in school. Whereas like for me, I think I might have lucked out at like top 100 or something. Um, but I barely got by. I was like, I was in full, I was like in a turtle mode. I was just like in the sense of like, I just wanted to stick to my own shell, right? Um, I didn't really want to challenge myself. Even though people are like, really? You went to West Point, you don't want to challenge yourself? When you talk about high school and when you talk about college, I was like that kid who was floating. I did enough to get a 90%, right? I was like consistent, just A minus student. I was not going to do more. And uh, it's very different than how I coach or mentor kids now, right? Because I see like the little bit of effort to go on beyond that, how much further it gets you in life. But for me, I was content with just being 
the bottom of the top. Um, I was like, I made it. I'm good. Right. I got mine. But uh, now that I see it, you know, there's like life lessons that I can apply to here. Um, looking at all I did, uh, I think there's two things I'll share. One is kind of this whole idea, which you all know, this idea of a growth versus fixed mindset. I was very fixed mindset. I was going to do enough just to get to the next stage. And I never really endeavored or tried more. And I realized I'm looking back, I missed out on a lot of opportunities, which is why for me and my sister, we coach my brother very differently, which is why I coach students very differently. Because I know the mental restrictions I have on my own head. I know that I'm scared to like try new things, endeavor new things, to fail publicly. Um, and I have over time tried to shift that. So that's one thing that I try to share with my kids um, in terms of my students, right? Like endeavor, try, fail, right? Fail as often as you can because fail, failure is just another word for growth. To me, I, I find that true. But it's so hard within my kind of innate, like, I don't know, maybe it's my Asian or Vietnamese identities. You don't want to fail publicly, right? You're just scared of it. Yeah. The other thing I would say that we have, so that is something that we have really tried to nurture into our students, regardless of age, right? Try, explore, right? Figure out that you don't like it, right? And then if you figure out that you don't like it, pivot and move on, right? But you miss like 100% of the chances you never take. Um, the other thing is kind of how we identify or qualify and then also teach leadership. Right. People think West Point is a big leadership institution um, and the people that go there are naturally leaders. That's not true. I was I was not a leader when I started. I promise you, I was like the biggest coming out of high school. I was just the biggest introverted nerd. And I was like deathly afraid of many things. But it is this idea that you can evolve your leadership. You know, when people think of, I guess, my time, the military, West Point leadership they think of like this lion that gets on a pedestal and does this whole roaring thing like in the lion king because you know they think leadership is like combat leadership it's not there's so many different kinds of leadership and my leadership has evolved significantly but just how west point taught leadership at the time changed while i was there right we went from an attrition based leadership model to more of a developing and nurturing leadership model and we have adapted that for our students here. You know, naturally, like coming from the military, the government is just like I have very strict ideas of what leadership is, but I've had to adapt how I do it to nurture kids correctly, right? I don't need them to be that lion in front of the pack or that wolf in front of the pack. We can be leaders in many different things, right? For my artists, for my authors, for whatever. Um, there's just so many ways to go about it. Um, but yeah. Oh, that's a, an excellent answer. I, uh, you know, I'm still like, in the thoughts of you saying about different types of leadership. And I would love to like talk about that um, after the podcast if you have some time. Um, but you know, like you were talking about failing publicly and so I'm just gonna pressure a little bit more on this um, to like share some of your failures in the past or do you even have your favorite failure? Uh, I don't know if I have a favorite failure. I mean, I'm one of those guys who's like, I, I'm terrified of public shame, right? Like I'm talking about like when I watch movies and I love cinema and there's like an awkward humor scene, right? Like I have to like close my eyes. I have to put my hands like in front of my face, like because I just cringe at those things. Um, I have a lot of failure moments, but if I were to bring up, like if this were a college application and I had to pick an essay to talk about a self-actualization, it would probably be my time. It was in my first year after graduating uh, from West Point. Um, I attended a, uh, a leadership school. It's called a ranger school. Uh, if I were to summarize what that school is, it's 60 days long, um, at least for most of us. Um, you spend most of that time working in a small group of about 40 individuals. At the time, it was all men. 
Um, but they have now since opened it up to uh, female soldiers as well. Um, and it's just a big leadership school. So it uses a lot of um, scenarios during like the Korean and Vietnam era conflict. You know, a lot of like, just imagine a 40 person unit living, moving, working in like the forest, the jungles, the mountains, right? The whole time you're outside. Um, and so every morning, um, basically what the cadre will do is they'll select a different group of leaders and they will give them a mission, kind of like a raid or an ambush or so forth. Um, you have to plan it. You have to brief your you know, team members and then you got to pick up and move your unit. Normally you got to move about 20 kilometers in a day. Everyone's wearing like a 40, 45 kilogram bag, right? So it's pretty heavy. Um, and you're doing this for 60 days, right? It's, it's a big grinder. Um, and now that like I look at it, it's fine. But back then, as like a 22, 23 year old, that was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. Um, so I just remember it's broken down into three phases of about two weeks um, or sorry, three weeks. Um, and I remember there's there's basically two grades that you get. One is uh, what you call kind of like your patrol grade. So like when you get selected as a leader and how you perform as the mission leader. Right. Um, and then two is you get a peer based grading. Um, so your peers they will also rate you, right? Just to kind of show how you were as a teammate. Um, we have this thing in Ranger School that we say, um, cooperate and graduate, right? Cooperate and graduate. Um, and I remember during the first two phases, I was super high on energy. I was just like um, doing anything and everything, whether I was in a leadership position or not. Even when I wasn't, I was like assisting like my, my unit leaders, assisting each other. I was carrying extra weight, maybe sharing some of my food, um, you know, keeping my buddies awake. Because it's just, it's a grind. Um, and, you know, like I got top grades in my patrols and I got top grades in my peers. I just remember like going to my uh, third phase. Um, I got my patrol like done and knocked out of the way very early on. And I just had like two weeks left. All I had to do was just be a good dude. Um, and I just completely like, uh, excuse my language, but I just crapped fed. Um, instead of being that reliable, dependable person that my team members could go on, I was like in, without kind of knowing it, I was like in self-preservation mode. I was like, I knew I was going to graduate. So I was just like, I did my part, guys. Like, I'm good to go, right? I never said it vocally, but my actions showed it, right? I didn't volunteer to carry as much. I didn't volunteer to look after people. I didn't volunteer to, um, yeah, with any of the extra tasks that weren't expected of me. Just to kind of wrap this up, uh, I let a lot of my team members down. Uh, one of my friends had asked me to assist on a particular like mission. Um, and I was like, yeah, sure, whatever. Um, and under my watch, um, you know, basically what happened was I was supposed to be in charge of a security element. Um, I let my security element and myself fall asleep. My friend basically failed the mission and then had to repeat a portion of school. And I just remember like getting on the bus, leaving towards my graduation, um, having to say goodbye to my friend. And I was just like, it was probably to me at the time, like I still get goosebumps like thinking about it because like I can see the look in his eyes, like how much I had failed my friend and everybody else, right? And it was like later on when I had another mentor explain it to me, um, I, not that kind of failure, just a different kind. But basically, we all have these thoughts of ourselves, right? Our ego, our pride. Um, we most, you know, people like to think of themselves in a high regard. I don't think anybody likes to think of themselves in a low regard, at least that's what they seek. Um, but for me, it's like, if you set the standard that high and you perform that high, that becomes your new standard amongst other people, right? Like if you want to be an A player, if you want to be a leader, right, you are expected to perform all the time. 
Like people don't care if you're tired. People don't care that you're sick or hurt or injured. If you want to be a leader, if you want to lead, you have to perform. Um, and that was just a big lesson for me in the sense of like, yeah, I like, I tried to make myself like this, you know, like this figure that people could depend on. And then when it came to the end, after I got my go, I took my foot off the gas pedal and, you know, like my team failed because of it. Um, and it just ate at me. It just kind of left like this hole in my heart. Um, and that has been um, a big, like something that I consider sometimes, like even nowadays, when I get tired, when I get, um, you know, when I'm stressed, when I'm anxious, and it's like, when I just want to like take a break from it all, it's just like, no, I'm, I'm here for a reason, right? Like I'm an organizational leader, people depend on me. Um, and you just have to perform. Thank you, Tommy, for being so candid with us. I know it's not an easy task to talk about failure and to reflect on what had happened, but I think only when people are fully over the fear and only when they have taken away the positive lessons from failure can they tell the story in such an amazing way that you did. So I really want to say thank you and I really appreciate you being so honest and open with me about it. And if I were one of your students, I would be so excited to look up to your story and be inspired by the long way that you have been through and be inspired to be who you are today. So I am really excited for them to listen to this episode. And yeah, after that, you finish your time in the army. Um, what was the transition like into Point Avenue and later on? Um, I had, uh, it was actually, I more or less transitioned um, from business school to Point Avenue. And so after my time in the military, so looking at 2015, 2016, um, I pivoted to business school, um, which was why I was living in Philly and we we're talking about Rittenhouse. So for two years there, um, so while you're going through your MBA, typically you can utilize your summer before you start your MBA and you can utilize your summer um, in between your two years. Uh, in the U.S., it's a two-year program um, to kind of intern and figure out what you want to do. Um, I remember um, that I had interned for um, an investment banking position with a big bank in New York. And that was just kind of like, for most, I guess, military officers, um, it's expected. You go to an MBA, you go get, you know, you go into a management consulting position, right, with MBB, or you go into a banking position, right, with your Goldman's or JP Morgan's, Morgan Stanley. Um, so I chose the banking route. I'll be honest. I, I mean, in a sense, like professionally, I was very thankful for my summer internship. Um, met a great group of people, like very dedicated bankers and all that. Got to experience a whole like New York life and everything. But there was just a part of it for me. Like at that time, I was 32, 33. Um, I could see how banking would be good for me if I was like, um, you know, like fresh out of college. Um, but for me, it was just, I saw it as kind of like the golden handcuffs, right? Um and I was just like, what am I doing, right? Like looking, I was just nugging on financial numbers, building models, like, and just making a whole lot of PowerPoints. I'm not knocking on my bankers out there. They do an incredible thing, right? And even for my consultants, it was just like at 32, 33, it just didn't really align with my goals. Um, I knew that if I stayed that route, well, one, I'd be thankful for it. But, you know, I could grow successfully, but it wasn't, I missed a lot of things. Um, I missed working with people. Right. More than anything, like uh, if I think of the military and I think of why I'm in education now, it's because I love people. Um, I love working with people. And so got the call uh, from Danny. Um, at the time, Danny, um, my CEO, was thinking about starting an educational venture in Vietnam and Southeast Asia and asked me if I would consider it. Um, 
I mean, truthfully at the time, aside from my own educational experiences um, and training experiences in the military, I didn't have like set teaching experience. Um, but I knew, and Danny was trying to convince me that you know, based on my leadership, my training, uh, my mentorship experiences, like it, this could work out, right? Not only that, um, to be able to, it was all about the purpose. And the purpose was like to be able to improve the lives of um, young kids like me, right? I'm Asian American, but I'm still Asian. I'm Vietnamese American, but I'm still Vietnamese. Um, and to be able to kind of like apply a lot of my life experiences, working alongside other educators uh, to deliver a good in this area, like that a lot inspired me. Um, and that's what I'm doing now. Well, it must have been one of these big life-changing events. And I, I'm sure you have many others as well. But just for anyone to move across the earth and to you know, settle in a new country, to um, have a change in Korea is something quite big to celebrate. And I am so happy that I get to talk to you today. I'm so happy that you are at Point Avenue. And I'm so happy that um, Point Avenue is creating so many values. Like you say, you, you wanted a purpose and I think you are doing it. Point Avenue is definitely creating so many values to the students around here. And I know that I, I, I look at them and I, I, I see many opportunities for the student to grow and to contribute back to the community. And I think that is such a sweet thing to see. Um, and, you know, Danny also talked about contributing back to the Asian community. And I also saw you, um, heard you talk about that as well. So it is such a sweet thing to, to hear, to see how both founders share that common goal. I think it would be interesting to hear about the team a little bit more from your perspective as well, because we also interviewed Danny on the team culture and how do you guys work together. So can you tell us a little bit about how you and Danny as um, partners in business, how do you guys collaborate? Um, in what kind are you guys similar? Are you guys different? How would you describe your team culture? He and I are very much like what I say, like the tortoise and the hare. Uh, so I'm the turtle, he's the rabbit. He's always uh, more or less like, uh, I mean, again, without him, we wouldn't be one here, two, successful. Um, but he's like always chasing like the next vision, right? And so he's always looking for what's possible. Myself as uh, our COO, um, I focus on the daily operations, administration and management of our plus 200 team members. And uh, it's more about making some of those uh, visions a reality. Um, we have lots of things that we focus on now. Um, our educational group, um, we first started in the K through 12 after school space. Um, we expanded on our tech, which is being integrated right now. Um, and then our third silo is building actual K through 12 schools, right? Like we're talking about private bilingual schools and defining what that should look like next. We're actually grand opening our, uh, our first uh, of many schools this fall uh, in Hanoi. Uh, but in terms of personalities, I would say, yeah, so with Danny, myself, I've already answered um, with others. Uh, what I love most about this is that, and it comes with its challenges. At Point Avenue, we try to offer a full spectrum, like K through 12 experience. And that's everything from your traditional, like language, math, um, but also like other enrichment programs, whether STEAM, competitive debating, camp, outdoor education, character development, leadership development. And to say that I have my hands in all that would be wrong, 
if it were just on me and Danny, we would all fail. With us, one, we have a very diversified team of uh, not only international and local team members, um, but also, well, I think the men in my company only make up about 25%, right? Um, education has generally been predominantly female-led, and I have a lot of incredible female leaders. Um, and uh, yeah, it's just this kind of environment we've made that where not only is it safe um, and open, but we demand, um, we demand different ideas. We demand for team members, for managers, for whoever it is, even like, you know, my newly hired admin, right? We demand your ideas. Um, and that's what we want, right? Because we are better together than alone. Um, and it's proven true, right? The, our academic vision, our operational vision, like everything is, it has footprint, it has stakeholdership from everyone. Um, is it that easy? Is democracy that easy? No, it's not. Um, it certainly comes with lots of challenges, right? Um, and sometimes, uh, ultimately, um, whether by myself or with Danny, you know, we have to make some hard decisions. Um, but we like, we like forcing buy-in from all people. Um, because that's the only way to really make an enduring, like, um, educational program or community, right? Um, yeah. Absolutely. I love that. And what I could see here is that you, both you and Danny share the same perspective on team culture. You both speak about, um, the bonding. You both, uh, speak about the togetherness and the, the team spirit together. Um, so I think it is so important for entrepreneurs and business owners to emphasize on the work culture itself. Um, so the goal is not to have the best individual idea, but to reach the best outcome for the business. So everyone's goal is for the business. Um, so I really love what you just shared with us. Yeah. And fast forward, it has been three years since you came to Point Avenue. And I guess you came to Point Avenue without an experience in the education space beforehand. So what was it like being the COO for the past three years? What has your journey been like? Yeah, I mean, like to say that I have no um, experience in education um, would be maybe a misnomer. Um, you know, my time, not only from my own individual experiences, um, most of my military, at least in the, uh, the final years, final three, four years was all spent on teaching, training, coaching, um, other foreign organizations as it relates to in the specific K through 12 and university field. Um, I did spend time, uh, with the admissions team at Penn, but yes, you're right. Coming to Point Avenue, that was the first time I led a educational organization. And that was also my first time entrepreneuring. Yeah, not easy, right? Obviously, lots of challenges and lots of scared moments, lots of failures, um, and been lucky to have just kind of the right people along the way. Um, but it's just like, you know, I'll kind of share this based on my experiences running an MBA. Now, obviously, fortunate enough to have come from a good MBA program. Um, but this advice was shared to me by my mentor before I started my MBA. And I was like, Tommy, you know, you don't need an MBA to do anything you want to do in life. Um, God, if somebody's listening from like Wharton, they're probably going to cringe. But I subscribe by it, right? Like companies, organizations, like were built long before MBAs existed, right? Um, teaching occurred long before we had like, you know, bachelors or masters or PhDs in education, right? Um, it starts with a desire. And as long as it's matched with a competency, right? Um, 
and a desire to keep innovating and learn, like you can do it. Um, and I would say that I'm proof of that. Am I, am I the best example? Maybe, maybe not, right? And that's okay too, right? I have plenty of faults that I'm trying to figure out as an entrepreneur, as a manager, as an operator, as a leader. My leadership is still evolving. And it's like, some people think that's crazy because of how long I've operated in all these industries, but it's evolving. My leadership has evolved tremendously. How I entrepreneur, how I do anything has evolved and it constantly evolves. So as long as you have a desire and it's matched with output, right? I mean, desire is nice, dreaming is nice, but are you reading about it? Are you teaching yourself? Are you connecting with other educators, right? Are you improving your own knowledge base? Um, and as long as you have the passion, you have the competency and the willingness to apply it into what you want to do, it doesn't matter what you do, right? I mean, like, let me ask you, is this your first podcast you made, right? Obviously doing a fantastic job, right? It's just like, you don't need a master's in podcast making to launch your own podcast, right? You just got to want to do it. You got to want to do it well. <laughs> yes, we didn't have a degree in doing podcasting or anything, right? Um, yeah, so I love that philosophy. You just need to do it. You need to learn it and you need to do it well. I love that. Absolutely. Um, so we talked about how you evolved over time and you even said something about your leadership as well. So I'm curious, do you remember what you were like after your first year at Point Avenue, after the second year, after the third year? What kind of changes did you have in yourself after every single year? Hmm, loaded question. Um, I'm lucky that I have the memory of a goldfish. I don't know if you know what that means, but you know, a goldfish will swim in a bowl, right? And as soon as it makes its lap, it just kind of forgets and it keeps going. Um, no, I, uh, I do take time to uh, step back, to reflect from time to time. Um, I probably don't do enough of it uh, as much as I either wish or my other fellow leaders probably wish, um, but they understand my, um, my constraints. First year was all about trial and error. Um, and it was just, you know, what they say in any big famous reference like entrepreneurship, right? It's just about just coming up with some sort of MVP, whatever that product or service is, right? Test trialing it, like, you know, and then basically gathering feedback on it and trying to continue to adapt, right? So it's everything from innovating to adapting to just persevering through it all. First year was scary because it was just like in the sense of even though we all had individual experiences, we had no collective experience working on it, right? Obviously, no matter what we were doing, you have to have everybody scared, right? Everybody's scared because this is our first 12 months and most, most entrepreneurships, most startup companies fail in that first like 12 to 18 months. And it was like, whether it was a combination of competency, sheer wheel, luck, luck is involved, right? Um, things didn't work out for us. Um, in the second year, you know, as soon as like uh, our first year went down and we knew we knew what we could achieve a little bit, we continued to obviously further accelerate in the sense of what we we're trying to do to innovate. Right. Um, you know, as for me, you don't really know what you know and you don't really know what you don't know unless you look back. Right. I think Steve Jobs and one of his like little famous graduation speeches to Stanford, like, you know, you can only connect the dots looking back. Um, was one of like his three pillars. And I really like that. That's something that stood out to me, right? This whole like Tommy in high school went through the military, went to finance, went to education. I could have never forecasted that. Um, and it's same thing with any sort of entrepreneurship, right? From a competency level, I have changed a lot in the education field, um, whether that is uh, as a manager, as a teacher, or as a educational strategist. 
um, just from sheer reading, sheer experiences with um, students and parents, and then also just connecting with people, right? Which is to me probably the most important thing, just learning from other experts. So I've changed a lot as a individual competency. I think as a leader, I've also changed a lot. Now, granted, uh, this is maybe my own biased view, um, but you know, coming from the military, my government time, I have no shortage of experience there. But how how you lead changes should change based on who you're leading, when you're leading, and where you're leading. Right? I can't like bark orders at people like I did in the military. Right? It's not the same life and death situation. And then it's just um, you combine COVID in there, you combine the economic challenges. And it's just, and you combine the general educational nature, right? It's, I have learned that uh, something that uh, I have challenged myself with over this past year, year and a half, and you know, maybe some of my own leaders will laugh at me, um, but it's just this idea of leading with kindness um, has become the most important thing to me. Trying to be understanding, trying to give second chances, trying to give third chances, whether to, um, other team members or whether to giving it to students, right? Um, I have learned that uh, over the past 12 to 18 months, trying to instill that in people as like the rest of the world is like, I, mean, I don't want to say it's going up in flames, but like um, there's lots of craziness going out there, right? Um, and uh, it's just this idea, um, I just don't want kindness to be lost. And I want it to be a hallmark of how we teach and how we mentor and how we live life. Right? I think that the world would be a whole lot better place if we were just a little more kind to ourselves and to one another. Um, and it's trying to focus on that is where I would like to think I have evolved for a little bit, but yeah, it's, um, it's something that I'm personally working on and something that I'm trying to nurture and what I want to, I want me and our community to be remembered for, right? That when times were hard, when COVID was hard, when just life was hard, right? That this is a professional community of educators, um, customer service members that just cared, right? They tried to help me, meaning from our students' point of view, or parents, right? They just tried to help us. Um, yeah. Yeah, it seems to me that you have such a clear vision on what kind of team you are building and what kind of team culture that you are forming at Point Avenue. And, you know, I, I think the team makes such a difference in the day-to-day -day operation of the business and you are the CEO. So I guess that influence heavily with how you um, manage the business itself. So are there any kind of criteria when you are looking for people, what kind of personalities or what kind of traits are you looking for when recruiting people? Well, I have an amazing HR team and I also have uh, amazing managers to kind of like cut through um, or not cut through, but like uh, find, identify and select. Without going into too many specifics, um, we recruit from many channels, right? Obviously your traditional platforms, um, we recruit from overseas. We used to recruit a lot from overseas, at least with the initial founding team. Um, we've gotten a lot better at recruiting locally um, since, and it's something that I want. But it all starts with um, our character attributes. You know, from, it starts with integrity, it moves into respect, right? And it deals with a lot of teamwork slash professionalism. Um, and we try to tease a lot of those things out. I'm always reminded of the fact, and I forget which mentor told me this, but like recruiting for hard skills is easy. 
right? It's recruiting for soft skills that's hard, right? And you can train hard skills, at least at the, even at the age of, you know, like some of my teachers, whether they're anywhere from 25 to 35, some of them more advanced into 40. Um, but you can teach the hard skills. It doesn't matter if it's like ELT, it doesn't matter like English language training, or if it's like test prep services or so forth. Uh, even camp experiences, a lot of those things can be taught. Um, but the starting with desire to want to teach, right? Just not desire to explore, but desire to want to teach, desire to want to um, excel at customer service, to want to serve, um, desire to want to be a good team member, right? Those are much harder to like developing somebody when they're already 25, 30 or so forth. And so a lot of our recruiting and assessment mechanisms are based on the soft skills. Obviously we put everybody through, you know, the more technical portion, um, but the things that we focus most is like, can you get along well with others, right? And how, like, even if it's just an interest in teaching, how serious is that interest, right? Are you just teaching to, like, you know, I hate to say this, but uh, just given the general teaching scene here in Vietnam, Southeast Asia, you know, some people are here just to teach to fund their travels. And that's not the community that I'm trying to build, right? I'm trying to build, um, recruit, and bring people that want to do something with their teaching, that want to do more than just pass knowledge. Um, and that affects how we recruit for our HR professionals, for our marketing professionals, for, um, you know, our uh, finance professionals. Like, um, it's not all just about the quick buck. It's about um, this togetherness um, that we focus on. Excellent. I love that answer. I can totally see how Point Avenue is striving for the quality. And this is about the quality of the teachers, the quality of the experience, and the quality of um, developing characters. I love that. And I was like, he's looking for people. Can I sign up? Can I be one of the team members? <laughs> um, yeah, so tell me before we finish our conversation, I would like to ask you some questions that we always ask all the founders on the podcast to gain different perspectives. So please feel free to take your time and think about the answers. But I'm going to go ahead and ask you these questions, okay? What is one of the best investments you have made it could be an investment in money, in time, or in energy. Best investment um, in the people, hands out. Whether it's in the military, whether it's like now in my educational group, you know, you can talk about leadership and all that. But I think today without people, there's nothing to lead. And for me, it's always my greatest satisfaction comes from working with people that I care about, right? Talented, capable, passionate, committed individuals who just want to do better in their field, whatever it is. Um, and then it's, I wouldn't be where I am today if it weren't for all the mentors or people who have opened doors for me. And I am just reminded that uh, I'm lucky. I'm so lucky. I think luck has, um, luck trumps any skill that I bring to any table in the sense of like people. I'm lucky by just the, um, the quality and the sheer numbers of giants in my life, whether it's my personal friends, um, whether it's my, um, my current group of managers and, you know, organizational members. I love being with good people. And, uh, you know, like when you talk about like when times are hard, when times are bad, it's not, yeah, you know, you obviously need money, wealth to carry you the things, but those aren't the people that are going to motivate you to go do more, right? It's other people that are going to pick you up to help carry you when you're down, right? They're going to be there to cheerlead you, you know, when you're at your best, um, and yeah, I always tell people, especially young people, 
you know, treat others how you want to be treated. Um, the act of giving gives life back to you. Um, that was true in the military and it's true in the education for me. Mm, I, yeah, I like your answer. Um, it's like you are basically doing an investment every day as well because you are in the education space and education is definitely an investment. Yeah, so the next question. In the last five years, what new belief, behavior, or habit has most improved your life? It goes back to kindness. Yeah, I never really cared about this when I spent my like seven, eight, nine years in the military. I was just like, really? Like, you know, I was part of a warrior cast. I'm a special operator. I don't need this, right? But looking at my life now and looking at where I am and looking at where the rest of the world is, uh, if I'm doing what it is, it's because when I was young, somebody taught me to treat others well. So I guess kindness, respect, right? Kindness flows from respect. But it is, again, the idea that whether... You know, I think nowadays we think that the world is very transactional, right? I'm only going to give what I receive. And I kind of, I can't change everyone, but I can at least, I can at least give. I can at least be kind. I can at least give second, secondary, tertiary chances. I can forgive. It's not always easy, right? It's not like I'm the Zen, you know, whatever person walking around just being like Master Yoda forgiving everybody. No, I'm not that. Um, but it's... It's being kind to others. It's being slow to react. It's it's listening, right, to understand rather than listening to respond. It is, uh, you know, you don't need to turn the other cheek, but it's like trying to understand somebody before you react, right, before you respond, before you yell. Um, it's all hard, but it's so needed because I have found that my pausing, my stopping from raising myself, from escalating myself, from looking down on somebody, like nine times out of 10, I was wrong in the first place for having that stereotype, for misjudging, for having this misperception. Um, and if you're not going to set the example for your organization, why would you expect it of them? Right? Why would you expect it of other people? Yeah. Mm, yeah. I love how you share your story. Um, I kind of think about the song with Selena Gomez, the Kill the with Kindness. Um, yeah, but kindness is important, isn't it? So my next question will be, in the last five years, what have you become better at saying no to? It can be either distractions or invitations or something else. What have I been better at saying no to? You know, my, uh, my executive assistant is going to laugh at this because uh, she loses her mind just trying to control my schedule, my calendar. In one, uh, there's kind of two parts of this that I've really failed at. Uh, previously um, that I need to get better at. It is true that I uh, say a lot to, or I say yes to a lot of things. I'm always willing to try. Um, and this is one of those things where it's truly less is more. Um, but in the beginning, when I was first learning entrepreneurship in education, in Vietnam, in Asia, right, I, I was afraid of failing. I was I was terrified of failing, right? You're talking about like a first time business leader, educator. Like I, you know, I defaulted to people with quote unquote more expertise, whether it was a master's education, like, or, you know, PhD, or just people with generally more business experience. Um, and so I had self-doubt. And so over time I have learned, right. Kind of like what I was sharing before, you don't need, certain degrees to go do whatever. Now, granted, medicine, law, like you need appropriate degrees. Um, but like in other things, it's just, it comes with a desire, a passion. It comes with a competency, 
and the willingness to apply. And so learning to say no to my fears of failing was important to me, to just endeavor, give it a try, break this, break this model, go try something else, go figure it out. So learning to say no to my fears, right, as it relates to entrepreneuring uh, was important. Um, the other thing that uh, I used to come up with all sorts of, because I was so focused on my organization, I used to uh, put my personal life on the side. Um, and, you know, most of my network or like close friends, whether in the military government or um, business school, um, it's back in the U.S., right, majority thereof. And um, while I was very blessed with having good friends, close friends, best friends, I just kind of put a lot of those things on hold. I was like, basically, hey, they'll be around. I'll reach out to them whenever, right? And, we'll, and whenever we pick up and talk, it'll just be normal. But it gets so much harder when you get older, right? Like you have careers, you have families. There is always a reason to postpone. Say no to that, right? Those people that you like had close friendships with, like in your college, in your first internship, your job, you never know when those people come back in your life, when times are hard, when you need, you know, when you're looking for a different career or job, like you reach out and like, hey, you know, this is where I'm at in life. You don't know that they're gonna open up doors for you, right? So it's learning to say no to my fear of failure and learning to say no to postponing like those catch up calls, right? Um, it's, uh, yeah, it's been the probably two things that have trumped anything else that I'm trying to actively get better at right now. Dù không phải là một người được trải nghiệm nền giáo dục tại Point Avenue, nhưng sau khi trò chuyện với Tommy và Danny thì Hoa cảm thấy rất là vui vì có một mô hình giáo dục không chỉ tập trung rèn luyện các bạn học sinh về kiến thức cứng mà còn rất tập trung về giáo dục kỹ năng mềm, thể chất và quan trọng nhất đó là character hay còn có nghĩa là phẩm chất. Định hướng giáo dục ở Point Avenue làm Hoa nghĩ tới câu tiên học lễ, hậu học văn mọi người ạ. Ngoài ra thì Hoa còn rất vui cho các bạn học sinh những mầm sống tương lai của đất nước vì các bạn được trải nghiệm một dịch vụ giáo dục trọn vẹn và có rất nhiều cơ hội để phát triển bản thân như vậy. Cảm ơn các bạn đã lắng nghe tập podcast. Hãy trò chuyện với chúng mình nhiều hơn trên Facebook và Instagram 021 Station mọi người nhé. Hẹn gặp mọi người vào các tập podcast tiếp theo.